Hello and welcome to The Renewable Generation, a show on climate and energy issues by young people for all people. My name is Evan, and as always, I'm joined with my lovely co-hosts, Stephen and Kelly. Stephen and Kelly, I don't know about you guys, but I've been watching this new Netflix series. It's called Down to Earth with Zac Efron. And what makes the show so interesting is that Zach goes, he travels around the world and he goes to these places and he learns about these sustainable practices. And then he, he, it makes him question practices that we have or structures that we have in the U.S. through that sustainability lens. And Zach Efron is such a child. And I know he's, he's not literally a child, but the way he navigates these countries is so childlike and it's so endearing. So to morph these two random thoughts into a little bit of an intro question for you guys, what was or what were some structures that you began to realize weren't working effectively when you were a kid? Um, yeah, and let me just start off with prefacing. You might hear this uh, this constant like droning in the background. So I turned off my AC. You know, I did my part. I'm sorry, guys, but there's like some a lawn a lawnmower going off outside. I I can't shut down the, the lawnmower, unfortunately. But uh, please bear with me. I, I appreciate it. Um, I will say that, you know, there's so many... Stru- that's such a great topic, Evan, because there's so many structures that are like that. But I guess to start off with the first one was, would probably be um, my... Yeah, I mean, like, my relationship with my family, um, my sister and my parents, when I realized that they were fallible as well. And I, I'm the younger sibling, so I, I was the baby of the, of the family. And I realized that, you know, you always look up to your elders and then you kind of realize that they're not perfect either. And I was like, whoa, that was like very like world world shattering to me. And then you kind of, you know, pick up the pieces from there. Yeah. Um, So for me, I think I generally try to be neutral as much as possible. So in terms of politics, I've kind I've kind of like read all the different perspectives, you know, all sides, like Republican, Democrat libertarian, whatever, progressive, and try to see which, you know, what parts of it that they're saying kind of make sense, and then figure out then, so they're, they basically, what they try to do is they say something about fundamental American values, like, you know what, we want everyone to have a fair shot, and that's why um, the rich need to pay more taxes, and I think that's kind of what Bernie Sanders is saying. And I think Trump is saying the elites don't care about you. Um, and so vote for me because I have your back. And oh. it's, it's like this is, this is not literally what their words are. But if you are a Trump voter, let's say you're a typical coal miner in, let's say, Kentucky or Ohio, or you worked in a steel mill that is shutting down you feel like you've been left behind. And while you see the coastal cities thriving, you're like, who's going to speak for me? Who cares about me? This was the first structure that ever that ever crumbled for you, Kelly? <laughs> <laughs> she, she was seven years old when she said all these things. She realized, <laughs> oh, Trump and Bernie. <laughs> Sorry. I mean, that was that was in um, 2016. She was, just, so, she was really passionate about John Kerry in 2004. <laughs> no. I just said, well, I said, I sent you guys um, an Obama speech. New York Times had a transcript of Obama's DNC speech in 2004. He is basically like his his whole ass life story, which is amazing. And then at the end, he's like, that's why we need to vote for John Kerry. I'm like, bro, you killed it there. 
Well, I like the way you guys uh, ran with my uh, discussion topic. I uh, My answer was just going to be the first time I went to a school that didn't have standardized testing. It uh, changed my life. I loved it. Well, speaking of personal experiences, uh, last week we talked not only about sustainability and ethics in the workforce, but specifically your experiences with your own companies um, with sustainability and ethics. So I was wondering, we alluded a little bit to diversity in the clean energy sector and in uh, just the energy sector as a whole. But what are your guys' personal experiences with witnessing or dealing with diversity in your own jobs? Yeah. um, So, you know, at at New Energy Equity, um, this is something that we've definitely had top of mind lately um, with everything going on. Um, And yeah, so one one of the things that we've, um, one of the places that we started this conversation was um, for, you know, first of all, the, the, the discrimination that black Americans feel and black folks all over the world feel is, you know, uh, a tragedy. And, um, it's a, it's a form of systemic violence and systemic racism. Um, when we look at the clean energy industry, for example, or, or solar in specific, um, we, we are also, you know, a part of the problem. Um, the solar industry is overwhelmingly white and male, um, so, uh, you know, you know, one thing to, to keep in mind is that we are not just a moment in time. The solar in- industry didn't come out from nothing. Um, it came from something. Um, so we are not just a moment in time. We are, we are the outcome of historical events. So um, the, the clean energy industry, including solar and wind and, um, you know, nuclear, largely came from the oil industry, which um, is kind of like what, what birthed this entire energy, um, you know, conversation and landscape. So the oil industry was also vastly white and male, and that's why the solar industry is like that as well. Um, so, um, you know, when you look at some of the demographics uh, across the, the, the solar at large, um, you know, you do see some um, some ethnic di- di- like breakdowns. Like you, you'll see that, like for example, like there are like Latino and Hispanic individuals in the construction and the installation side, which is you know that's a fact right at there, but it's maybe. A little bit, um, you know, problematic. The fact that they are only like relegated to certain parts of the industry. Yeah, um, I definitely agree, and I think a lot of companies are having these tough questions right now, um, or they're asking themselves these tough questions, and they're trying to figure out kind of what are some of the things that they can do. And so I'll just give you a couple examples at my company. Um, so our CEO, he just. Um, became the CEO basically when COVID started. Um, and so he's just like, he promised that what he was going to keep everyone updated, do the, um, he, so one thing that he's doing is doing biweekly town halls so that people in the company are able to kind of voice their concerns and feel like they're being heard. And so on one recent um, town hall, he actually had two people come from the, uh, from the, there's some like internal diversity group. Um, so there's two, I think, uh, young people of color um, who he invited to basically speak about their experiences in Centrica about this policy. Um, sorry, not about about um, just their experiences with race in the UK, at Centrica, etc. So yeah, so that's one example. And another example was that um, there's our head of strategy for Centrica Business Solutions. He's a black man who's living in the UK, but he grew up actually in the Caribbean, and he basically 
wrote like an extremely heartfelt piece kind of saying how race has affected him and he said it's really impressive to him that our CEO is even talking about it. His first, he said his first response when he heard the CEOs talking about it was skepticism. He's like, eh, I don't, I don't know, man. Like, I don't, I don't know, skepticism. And I think now because he sees that actually our CEO is legitimately trying to do the right thing um, and we're just trying to figure out the strategy for doing so, I think we're at, a, we're at a point where we're willing to come up with a lot of maybe different types of strategies to do that. And obviously it's kind of, there's kind of a tragic backdrop where we wouldn't, we probably wouldn't be talking about, especially corporations wouldn't be talking about these things if not for the Black Lives Matter protests or um, that are still going on and started in late May, early June. So it's interesting. I know we shouldn't be just shaming corporations and CEOs for waiting until this moment to speak out. But what we should be doing is kind of leading and directing them into like, what are the right ways to go about this? So what are the ways that corporations or CEOs, maybe the companies even that you work for, have been trying to um, change the way that they work with diversity ever since the Black Lives Matter protests? I think it's interesting because now a couple of weeks have passed since George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and um, a lot of, in a lot of ways, the, the protests have like died down. Um, not not entirely. Um, they're not. They're still actually going on all over the country, and now they're super peaceful, and therefore they don't get media coverage because the media only likes to cover things that are you know spicy or edgy and things like that. But um, so now I think that the a lot of the the emotional uproar has kind of died down, and people are thinking about how do we actually implement things um, you know practically so that there's real world um, impacts to that. So. One of the ways that um, SIA, the Solar Energy Industry Association, has been tackling this is by really amplifying voices of color within their organization and hosting training events and talk about cultural sensitivity, like hiring practices, retention practices. And that's something that um, NEE has also been spearheading in, in the industry. We're also trying to really focus on, on like candidate pool and talking about like, you know, who, how are we, who are we looking at for candidates to positions in our company? And that, you know, prior to all this was not a very great answer, honestly. It, well, and let me also contextualize that, that this is a company that was founded by a, a you know, person from Ohio, from a conservative background, from, um, you know, surrounded by not much, not many people of color in Ohio. Um, so there's also like, not to make excuses, this is by no means what I'm trying to make is make excuses. It's about also recognizing where people come from and helping them along the path to you know education at the end of the day this all this should be a practice in education and learning about your own privileges and expanding those your your understanding and awareness of other people who maybe don't look like you and don't, don't have the same privileges that you do based off maybe your skin color or um you know your your gender or you know how you're raised how much money you had things like that so this this is i think all of this to say is we are focusing on creating task force that are having difficult conversations and uncomfortable conversations within the company and, you know, um, trying to move past just the conversation to actually hiring practices and cultural retention practices. Yeah, um, that, that's really great, Stephen, that your company's doing that. Um, I, so for me, um, I'll just give a couple examples of some things that I've seen in the industry. So for instance, Microsoft actually recently... 
Um, they've been thinking about partnering with uh, HBCUs, the historically black colleges, and doing recruiting events there. Um, and I think that's a great opportunity to kind of get a more diverse, let's say, pipeline of candidates. Um, and I think they actually have an office in Atlanta. So um, basically even having like satellite offices in different areas of the country where their um, more diverse employees can be affiliated with. Because right now it's like in Seattle, they're kind of, they're like based in Seattle, but they do have satellite offices elsewhere. And I think they kind of want people to like be in their HQ most of the time. But now, especially due to COVID, um, we've realized that everyone's pretty much working remotely anyway. No one's going back to the office. And it's kind of like, whatever, we can kind of, we're making it work. And now it's time for Evan's Climate Fact of the Day. Did you know? Before Al Gore became the spokesperson for global warming, Zac Efron inspired the world to action with this haunting ballad, We're All in This Together. We're all in this together. That was Evan's climate fact of the day. Hey, you guys you guys have started to help me out. It's uh it's nice. I uh I feel I feel like uh my climate fact of the day is a little more welcome now. Let it be known that I came up with that like five minutes before we <laughs> recorded. Yeah, that's <laughs> true. I'm not even coming up with my own jokes anymore. So before the break, we were talking about how we um, institute pipelines within companies. Um, but what do we do once we have pipelines? How do we retain diverse employees? Stephen? Yeah, this is something that we are also thinking about a lot in our company um, cause, because it's not enough to just, you know, um, hire people um, from diverse backgrounds into your organization and your job is done. It's also about, you know, influencing the actual culture within your company and making sure that they feel supported they feel welcome and they don't feel, you know, tokenized. You don't want to hire someone just because they are, you know, queer or because they have, you know, a dark skin tone. Like you, you want it to be um, something that you're paying more attention to, um, but it shouldn't be, you know, a checkbox that you're that you're marking off in the in the hiring process. So, you know, how, what do we actually do once once we have a more diverse workforce in your company? Um, one of the things you want to focus on is, um, you know, you might want to do some trainings. Um, you might want to, there, there are tons of resources out there, especially now, um, specifically for this problem of training employees to be, you know, essentially not a jerk to each other. Um, and, and, and little jerk, you know, moments can happen. They're called microaggressions. They can happen without anyone intending it to happen. Like, you know, someone could say something like insensitive, like, oh, I love your hair. Can I touch it? And to them, that sounds totally innocuous. It sounds like a compliment, you know? But it, in reality, it's makes someone feel, it can make someone feel very uncomfortable. So it's, it's really just about, like, opening people's eyes to these things and, um, and trying to, yeah, create a, a, a positive environment where people feel comfortable. And I would add to this all is this is not all just, I'm not talking about all of this through the goodness of my heart. And just because, you know, this is the things that we should be doing, even though that is true, it also, it also translates to better um, company performances. Um, in fact, the Boston Consulting Group reported 19% higher revenues due to innovation and cross-pollination of ideas. So any company that's working in tech or engineering or, you know, idea or thought-based um, industries, you want different diverse um, perspectives in around because 
you will you will get ideas that you wouldn't have gotten otherwise. And cross pollination leads to innovation, which leads to a better business. Yeah, um, I agree with everything that you said, Stephen. Um, I think to the point about not touching people's hair. I think if you if you have a relationship with them and you're close enough that they would allow you to touch your hair and it wouldn't be like an intrusion on their privacy, then you can. But if it's just some random black person in your workplace who has hair that's different and you want to touch it, it's that's kind of intruding on people's privacy. And I think that it's not a great thing to do. And I think the root of that is kind of just respect, right? We should respect other people and try to understand them. Another thing that I um, that we were talking about is mentorship. So sometimes... Um, for whatever reason, I, so this is actually something that has been talked about in a lot of books like Lean In. Sheryl Sandberg suggests for people to find, or, or she tells women to find female mentors um, who know what it's like to be a woman. Personally, I think it's very weird to assume that a woman would automatically be like, if just because you're a woman, you would automatically have a connection to some other woman just because she's a woman. Like, no, people connect about various random things. It's probably a total coincidence. Like, oh, when we met, it was because we had this random connection. Like, oh, you did this thing. I did this thing, too. Wow. Like, we have so much in common. And I think having that as the foundation of your relationship makes makes you feel like that's a way for you to move forward. Um. So actually, in my company, we don't have a formal mentorship program, but a lot of companies, um, they ha- have like high, high potential employee programs where they provide mentorship, and they actually encourage people like across the company to essentially seek out um, someone who is perhaps in a more senior position who, could, who they could kind of talk to about um, where they are in their career, what their goals are with career, life, whatever, and just kind of be there for them as someone who has perhaps experienced more in the industry. And then the mentor, um, as like uh, someone who's more experienced, can kind of provide their expertise. And it's just like a mutual exchange of experiences, and they can both kind of work together to um, improve each other. So, Stephen, you mentioned uh, people not wanting to feel like they're the token or they're like the reason they were hired is strictly because of their race or their sexuality or um, uh, other various reasons. Um, And Kelly, you were bringing up mentorship programs that might serve as like a pipeline or a way to like introduce people uh, into companies. But how much do you think is the responsibility of companies to do that? And how much do you think that onus lies on like legislation or even uh schooling like education i would say briefly i want to hand this to you kelly because i feel like you have more to say on this than i do but i would say definitely not legislation i would say in my opinion i think that is not the place of government to to mandate diversity in companies these issues are social issues these are society-based issues and they should be solved by society in my opinion um i think i think it's problematic when the government can come in and start to say you need to have X amount of, you know, quotas or things like that. Um, if it's a mandate in that sense, if it's, if it's legislation in the other sense of, you know, providing more support to inner city schools or education or creating, you know, 
mentorship programs or, or internship programs in that sense, I'm, I'm more of a favor of it. But in terms of the government coming in and saying, you know, for example, like the California legislation that came out, which was controversial, and I won't speak to which way I, I lean on this, but there was a con- California legislation that came out that every public company, their board, has to have mandated one female um, individual on that board by law. They have to. And I think that is controversial um, just because it's um, an interesting point. But I, I'll, I'll leave it there. Um, yeah, I agree. I think any government regulation will trigger someone. You're just creating more rules, and then there's always exceptions to any rule, right? And so it's just like you're just adding another layer of bureaucracy, and then I think just, you know, there's only, people say there's only two certainties in life, like death and taxes, and we can add a third one, maybe bureaucracy. <laughs> and I think there's a, there's a lot of people who think that the government's, like, on the right, people perceive that the government, it just provides a layer of bureaucracy, Whereas perhaps on the left, people are like, the government's job is to save people from um, oppressors or whatever. And I think the, the latter, that should be what the government's role is, right? Like, we should all trying to be trying to do the right thing. Whereas just creating more layers of BS and bureaucracy, it's, um, it's very, if you know the, any of the works by the author Franz Kafka... It's we. It's called. It's very Kafka esque. Like his books are kind of like memes about how bad bureaucracy can be. Yeah, I was. I would, and I would add to the to your points there about um, you know, like what is the government's role or not the government's role here? Um, and I mean, I think there will be listeners who might say like who might get a little upset and they say like the government should be doing this, otherwise it's not going to get solved. But if you look at the private sector and you look at like society at whole, we've seen massive shifts in the last months or two. Um, you know, many would argue not enough, um, and that's fine. But um, we, as Americans, a lot of Americans vote with their dollar. Um, and in a lot of ways, that is more effective than, than policy and, you know, fighting the, playing the games in, in, in politics. Like you, voting with your dollar means, you know, the, is the fact that Nike has put forth these, ad, these advertisements about, like, Colin Kaepernick and the fact that NASCAR has come forward and, you know, celebrated their, their sole black uh, athlete. Um, so, like, companies are shifting here. Um, so, you know, is it enough? That's another thing. But the private sector is making moves. So um, when we talk about something the private sector hasn't solved, the gender wage gap, what are your thoughts on uh, government intervention on issues like that? So when computers first started being built, all the pioneers in the field of software were women. Grace Hopper was the first programmer, and she was a woman. And all the men at that time were like, software is too soft. That's why it's for the women. Men were hardcore, and we do hardware. And so that's, that's, I, like, that's why software used to actually be a woman-dominated field. Then once um, society realized how prestigious um, or how important software was, it became male-dominated. And that's, I think, maybe a function of the fact that we live in a society where we think that men are supposed to do the more, like, you know, economically successful jobs, but that doesn't matter. Like, anyone should be able to use software, and you can use software to solve any problem. And software is mainly a tool. It's neither female nor male. A lot of the time now, 
people are like, oh, software, that's evil. It's just used to make money for big companies. But software can also be used for things like controls for off-grid microgrids in refugee camps. Those things require software too. Someone needs to write that code. Who's it going to be? It literally doesn't matter what race or what gender they are. Just someone should do it to provide a better quality of life for people who have fled from violence or genocide or torture and they just lack resources. And maybe, you know, people are like, the UN's job is to do that. The UN, based on talking to people I know who work in the UN, there is so much bureaucracy. And so it's very hard for them to kind of cut through that and get things done. They're like, oh, but we have to do this, we have to do this, we have to talk to this person. And it's just like, there's so many different points where a good idea can just like, like fall. And I think what we need to do is just recognize ideas for what they are, right? If it's a good idea, do what you can to scale it up. Talk to people about it. You know, most ideas are not original per se. You, You probably saw it somewhere. And if you think it's a good idea, you should try to spread it. Tell your friends about it. 100% agreed. 100% agreed. There's, there are very few original ideas out there. It's just putting them together in the right place at the right time a lot of ways. Like um, so many, I mean, let's talk about businesses and startups. There are so many companies that had the right idea, but they failed on execution or they failed because the market just wasn't there yet or like the need wasn't there yet. Um, you know, solar and wind, for example, have been around for decades and they've been cost competitive for about a decade, but they haven't really taken off until recently because of societal inertia. So there's, it's not really about, there's a, we overhype the idea of ideas in society where we say like, oh, there's a brilliant, you know, like brilliant inventor, like, you know, um, Edison, you know, discovered the the light bulb, but it's not really about, we, 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 we do overinflate the the importance of singular ideas or singular individuals. Um, you know, going back to this idea of like the gender wage gap, um, um, there, this is such a nuanced topic, right? I would love to have like a really deep, deep dive conversation on this. And you know, the, the thing is, the thing, first thing I'll say is that this conversation is nuanced. So I don't want to say anything too, um, ideological and say one thing or the other, because that's not what I want to do here. I don't want to, you know, make, take a stance like a male stance or a female stance. I think it's a very nuanced, difficult problem. Hey, Steven, I think you don't have to qualify what you're going to say, okay? You're a man, <laughs> I'm a woman, we'll balance each right. other out. So uh, what was your point about the gender wage gap? Well, um, at least some of the things that we can do to solve it, um, to solve this problem, is we can offer more on-site childcare for women um, because most of the time women tend to take care of the children or normalize you know, fathers taking paternity leave um, you know, one of my, my boss at my company, he, um, recently had a child and, you know, had to, he asked for, you know, saved up all of his PTO for, you know, after the birth of his child. So he could be there as a, as a new father. And I thought that was really, um, kind of sad a little bit, honestly, like the fact that, you know, it had to be this, this, this sacrifice or this, you, you had to pay for it somehow. Um, you know, the cost of being a father. And, and the, the fact that paternity leave is not normalized, you know, further reinforces these um, gendered roles in society. So if we want to be serious about, you know, um, level, leveling the playing field here, we, wanna, we need to offer structural changes. And that, those are two ways that we can do this. All right. Well, I think now it's time for the segment that increases protection of trade unions. It's the Green New Spiel. Well, 
this week I am going back on my Elon Musk fanboy, um, putting on my hat again. Um, and you know, Kelly, Kelly just rolled her eyes so hard they fell out of her head. But, um, so Elon recently, um, tweeted this last week that he, he commented on someone's post saying Tesla is open to licensing software and supplying powertrains and batteries. We're just trying to accelerate sustainable energy, not crush competitors. So, um, this is like kind of going off of the heels of what I've said in the past that Tesla, yes, they're a private company. Yes, they're trying to succeed, but their ultimate mission and Elon Musk's ultimate mission is to, is to create sustainable energy and, you know, um, democratize it for everyone. This is what he's trying to do with the Tesla Roadster, Model S, Model 3, Model X now, and then Model Y. Um, but there's a lot of, you know, you have to, um, you have to do a lot of work to get there. So what I, what I mean by that is in 2019, hey, okay, look, 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 we're getting off track about you. This is not an Elon Musk fanboy podcast. This is my green new spiel. <laughs> yeah, but you, to, you went back to 2015. Kelly. This is my green new spiel. This is my green new spiel. Ke- Kelly, let him have the moment. <laughs> this is his time. <laughs> this is his time with Elon. <laughs> I'll shorten it here. So Tesla sales were 375,000 in 2019. However, Toyota and Hyundai were 10.74 million and 7.19 million, respectively. So Tesla ultimately is a tech company that happens to sell cars. What I'm saying here is that Tesla is going to start licensing their software and their batteries. At the end of the day, what makes them distinct is how great their batteries are. So they're going to start, they're open to selling that and licensing that to their competitors. And I think it will be really effective in accelerating electric vehicles throughout the world. Great. I like your interpretation of Elon Musk's vision. (laughs) (laughs) That was the highest compliment you will ever get. (laughs) Yeah, um, so my greenish spiel is actually about an initiative that a friend of mine is starting here in the Pacific Northwest. He's starting a organization called the Pacific North Wealth Foundation. So the vision of this is to essentially take all the wealth that we have here in the Pacific Northwest, whether it be natural wealth, like weird, beautiful Washington, most beautiful place on earth, okay? That's my opinion. You may disagree. That's fine. Two, human-created wealth. We have tons of successful companies here in Seattle. Amazon, Microsoft, Costco, REI, like all really great companies that are changing the world. And the vision is to bring... um, to bring these together. So one example of how we can do that for the clean energy industry is that we can have basically mentorship programs where, um, for instance, we can have employees who work in um, renewable energy go into schools in underserved neighborhoods or take the kids on field trips. So for instance, I remember as a kid, this one time we took a field trip to the hydroelectric dam at Snoqualmie Falls. That was so cool. I, I think every kid should have the opportunity to understand that hydropower exists and kind of see it with their own eyes because, you know, sometimes you have to actually see the thing in real life to understand it. And so I think just expanding access to these opportunities, you know, I think actually recently they closed the field trip program there. Um, but I think you know, it's, there's nothing wrong with taking kids there just to, you know, check it out and look around. And I think that these opportunities should be accessible to everyone. So if you maybe work in a place like a hydroelectric plant, nuclear plant, whatever, and 
you think that there's part of it that would be interesting for kids to see, maybe ask your colleagues, like, hey, what if we started doing field trips? You know, kids are doing Zoom education anyway. So right now, Zoom education, not great. So it's time to think about what actually is education. We can expand that definition to include pretty much anything. We just learn by interacting with the world. So taking kids from backgrounds where they don't aren't necessarily exposed to things like renewable energy, take them out there. Have them see a wind farm spinning before their eyes. Have them see a solar farm and explain how it works and just like expose people to new ideas. And kids, maybe they don't understand the exact mechanisms or science of how it works, but they just love seeing cool things. And I think just cultivating that childlike sense of wonder, that's what education is all about. And that's what the Pacific North Wealth Foundation is trying to do. So they're trying to set up the partnership between schools, industry, ski resorts, like outdoor organizations to kind of bring everyone together, bring everyone to the table and figure out how we can move forward. Well, I think if we're going to bully Stephen for his Elon Musk worship, we have to bully Kelly for her Pacific Northwest worship. <laughs> hey, I that is that is true. I, I worship the spirits of the mountains and the trees. It, to be fair, it is beautiful out there. It's, I can't deny how freaking beautiful it is. Yeah, that's true. I was I was just telling Stephen about how I want to move to Washington. <laughs> so I, I, I was telling I you both about how great Washington is, and now you want it. <laughs> it's rubbing off on us. <laughs> Well, thank you, Stephen and Kelly, for your green new spiels. And with that, we wrap up the segment and we wrap up the show. Thanks, as always, for listening to The Renewable Generation. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter right now. Uh, feel free to also DM us on Instagram. Uh, I think we, we gave out our Instagram handles last week. So if you, ever, if you have anything you want us to go over on the next episode of The Renewable Generation, let us know there. Let us know anywhere. Um, I mentioned this on Facebook the other day, but I'll mention it here too. Uh, we're going to start releasing podcasts on a bi-weekly basis from here on out. That's just to ensure the quality of each episode. Um, me, Stephen, and Kelly, we all have lives outside of this, and uh, sometimes it helps to have a week off. I have no life. Don't, don't, don't get it wrong. You know what, man? Yeah. <laughs> we don't have lives, but uh, <laughs> sometimes it's just nice to lay in bed for a while. <laughs> But hey, that's what I'm doing right now. I'm recording this podcast <laughs> from my literally desk. what Kelly is doing right now. <laughs> so thanks everyone for listening and we'll see you next next week. Mm-hmm.